0: From Georgetown University, this is Seeking Peace. I'm Milan Verveer. And this is Liberia's first woman president, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who was also the first woman to be elected president of any African country.
1: I inherited a devastated country, which means the needs were profound. Every area of our society had been destroyed. I just became the catalyst and the spark to move all these things together into a combined,
0: a collective force of wanting to bring the change that we have. President Sirleaf took office at a pivotal moment for her country, as it was emerging from a decades-long conflict. As president, she successfully led her country to a sustained peace which is an incredible feat. Half of all peace agreements break down within the first five years. We know that the time right after an agreement is made is crucial, and including women in the process can make it or break it. I recently spoke to President Johnson Sirleaf about how she and women in Liberia were able to do it. But first, we bring you to the front line of the peace process in Colombia. In 2016, after more than 50 years of war against the government, Colombia's largest left-wing rebel group, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC, agreed to lay down their weapons. They had started fighting in the 1960s over land rights for the poor, but became known for bombings and kidnappings. Now that the rebels have ceased fighting, former insurgents are working to remake their lives. With support from the Pulitzer Center, reporters Veronica Saragovia and Laura Dixon spent months meeting former rebels, and they bring us the story of two women who've remade their lives since the signing of the agreement.
2: This is Veronica Saragovia, and I'm going to start us off here in downtown Bogota's Capitol building. One of the most historic days in Colombia happened this past summer on July 20th, 2018. I watched through a window pane with other reporters as FARC members take their seats inside the House of Representatives. They're wearing suits, colored shirts, and heels. Nothing like the olive-green fatigues they wore in the jungle. That's because they're not fighters anymore. Now, they're politicians, something most people in Colombia thought could never happen. For decades, this group was more interested in blowing up the state's democratic institutions than taking part in them. But when the FARC signed the peace treaty on November 24th of 2016, it transformed from a rebel group into a political party. Then-President Juan Manuel Santos stands at a podium and initiates the 2018 legislative session. He gives a special welcome to the FARC members. He says, now that you've laid down your arms, now that you've promised to support the truth and submit to the transitional justice system, now that you've sworn to respect our constitution and the norms and principles of our republic, welcome to this temple of democracy. He urges all of Congress to protect Colombia's fragile peace settlement and to work with the FARC coalition. To help the FARC transition from a terrorist group to a political party, the 2016 peace deal guaranteed the FARC 10 seats in Congress, five in the House and five in the Senate for the next eight years. Two of the seats went to women, and one of those went to a former guerrilla commander who played a key role in the peace talks, Victoria Sandino. Now, Senator Victoria Sandino. After Santos's speech, hundreds of people spilled out into the hallway. I find Sandino, and she tells me to walk and talk. I'm well, she says. Many of our expectations are fulfilled now. We feel like members of Congress. And
3: then Sandino sees people she knows and leaves me, disappearing into the crowd. This is Laura Dixon. Veronica and I organize another meeting with Sandino several weeks later to hear how things are going. I ask her about this radical change from her guerrilla fighter life. She loves sleeping in a bed. That's been really great, she says. Then she gets more serious. She tells us it's a hard question. (laughs) She says she's heartened that the worst of the bloodshed is over, that the deaths of Colombian soldiers and FARC combatants in the countryside have ended. That is the fundamental thing, she says. Still, it's an uphill battle. Sandino needs to work alongside politicians, who for decades supported obliterating the FARC. And a lasting peace is not guaranteed. Sandino admits much of it remains to be implemented. In fact, the process is expected to take up to 20 years. Questions remain about how the new president, Ivan Duque, will make his mark on the implementation of the accord. A lot of the controversies that took d- place during the war are still being confronted. In August, a former FARC colleague went on a daily radio talk show to make a serious accusation against Sandino. This anonymous woman alleges a male FARC fighter raped her and that Sandino knew it happened and didn't do anything about it. Sandino says claims like this are part of a smear campaign in which the FARC's opponents paint the group as rapists and terrorists. If the claims are true, she says, they should bring them to a special court set up by the peace treaty. I'm willing to go before the peace tribunal if anyone brings charges against me. If the tribunal calls me in, that's where I will go, she says. The court has been set up to investigate accusations of crimes during the war. Sandino is now 53. 53.
2: She was born into a poor farming family just as the war was beginning. Armed groups fighting over territory forced her family to move from their land four times. Sandino joined several years later after finishing her journalism degree in Bogotá. War is cruel, she says. It's very intense, and in those conditions, we women had to demand more of ourselves. A lot of us weren't used to this kind of life. Still, Sandino rose through the ranks and eventually became a commander. But even though women made up about a third of all troops, Sandino says the insurgency had a glass ceiling.
1: (inaudible) Women could only
2: get so far, not to the highest levels of leadership, she says. But in peacetime, she tours the country. Now that she's able to travel openly, one place she visits is Colombia's far north a demilitarized zone that is home to hundreds of former FARC insurgents.
3: We are in the far north of Colombia, in the region of La Guajira on the border with Venezuela. It's a dusty, open space that these ex guerrillas now call home. There are about 200 small prefabricated houses here, some decorated with murals of FARC commanders. Lush green mountains stand in the distance, dogs lounge around, laundry hangs to dry. Every morning, people take turns to shave and wash in communal shower and toilet blocks. Elisa Castro greets us. That's her war name. During the conflict, FARC fighters used aliases instead of their real names, and most of them still go by these aliases, even Victoria Sandino. Castro spent three decades fighting in Colombia's mountains and jungles before coming here. She takes us inside her house. This is the room they gave us, she says, with a little bed and a fan. Before the peace duty, Castro and other fuck competents got everything they needed from their commanders, even underwear, but now they have a budget to manage, roughly $230 a month supplied by the government. I bought a fridge, a stove, a bed and a TV, she says. She paid for these things by stashing away a bit from each payment. I ask her how life's going now, after the war. <laughs> Everything's a routine now. I cook, go to meetings, we have those at 5.30am. They get updates from the leader of their camp each morning. Things like how long they can stay here until the government stops paying rent. Daily meetings are a tradition they've kept from the jungle days.
0: Castro tells
3: us her dad was a guerrilla fighter before she was. Right-wing armed groups, enemies of the FARC that sympathized with the Colombian army, started killing people in her town, she says, a brother, a nephew. She says that violence led many people to join the FARC, including her. At 23, Castro left home and became a guerrilla fighter. Now she's 57. Those three decades in the jungle were hard. They had to trek for miles and miles carrying heavy packs. Sometimes they had to move every night. And when she got pregnant, she had to keep up the pace. So when she gave birth to a baby girl while she was in hiding, She only had a few weeks with her. I gave her away at two months, she says, because it was really dangerous. In the mountains we had operations every day, so my friend took care of her. Twenty years after giving up her daughter, once the fighting stopped, they finally reunited. It was a nice reunion, she says. We cried and all those things. Castro later tells us that reuniting with her daughter was huge for her and hard to explain because it was so emotional. She says they hugged and kissed for two days, and fell asleep in each other's arms. But despite the joy of seeing her daughter again, Castro says she's not happy. Living in poverty isn't what she fought for.
0: La paz es digan, no, hay más Peace
3: is when the killings stop, everyone's doing well, and the poor have their land, she says.
2: Castro is fiercely loyal to the FARC, then and now that it's a political party. She won't criticize anything about the former guerrilla group and is hopeful that her colleagues turned politicians will work for people like her. But she says she still feels unsafe, even in peacetime. She rarely ventures far from this camp because she says she fears for her life and for the lives of her two sisters back home. She still hasn't visited them, even though the peace deal has been in place since 2016. Many FARC ex-combatants have been murdered since the end of the war, and Castro's afraid visiting her sisters could put them at risk too. We ask her what she hopes to be doing five years from now.
0: If I'm alive then,
2: I hope I have a good house, where I can live with my children, she says, referring to her daughter and an older son she had before joining the FARC. I want to study, so when you come here next time, I will have finished my high school degree, and I'll be studying for a career that will support me. This is a crucial moment for Colombia's peace deal. Former combatants like Castro and their advocates say ex-insurgents need more support and a secure place to live. The fear is that poverty could lead some to join other armed dissident groups, in fact many already have there have been several reports that hundreds if not thousands of former FARC members have rearmed Victoria Sandino says more than practical help is needed Colombia's divided society needs to come together people need to forgive It's really easy for people who haven't lived through war to see it through the media, through those opinion makers who say we were a bunch of assassins, we're bad people. But I say, man, give us a chance to show you who we are, get to know our humanity, our commitment to peace, to Colombia as a whole and to its communities. After decades of violent conflict and years of negotiations, Sandino says, finally, there is hope to bring peace to Colombia. This is a great opportunity, she says, not to be lost.
0: Reporting for this story was supported by the Pulitzer Center. Working with people who used to be your enemies is a daunting task. And perhaps no one knows that better than former Liberian President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. After 14 years of brutal civil war, she was the first woman elected president of any African country. President Sirleaf had the support of the most powerful women in Liberia, the market women who sold their wares in outdoor marketplaces. They traveled all the way to Accra, Ghana, where the peace negotiations to end the civil war in Liberia were taking place. The women blocked the entrance to the negotiating hall until the men came up with a peace settlement. When she became president, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf brought these powerful women into the political fold.
1: The best days are coming. We cannot, we must not, we will not. that is filled with promise, filled
0: with hope. At the end of her two six-year terms, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was responsible for the transparent and peaceful transition of power to another democratically elected president. In 2011, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for her work advocating for the safety of women and the rights of women to participate in peace-building. It was a pleasure to sit down recently with her to talk about her tenure. Let me ask you a little bit about the role that the women played in ending that almost two decades long conflict. Why was it so pivotal? How did they express that desire of enough is enough? and actually take truth to power and force a peace process and then ensure that it developed into something concrete.
1: I think these were women who shared the agony of women that had been affected by the war. They shared the disunity that existed in our society, and this is why it brought together Christian women and Muslim women in a combination of unity to stand up for certain things To challenge the status quo, to be able to be brave and bold enough to deal with military leaders and to say to them, it was time to change, that the suffering was too much. As women, they had borne the the brunt of the suffering. Their children were being affected. And, And so these were just brave women that formed an alliance and got together, regularly met and made their point noon, And so, I think they were strong, and, and they accomplished what, what they set out to do, to force the change. And they went to the Accra peace talks and took some sometimes unorthodox position uh, to achieve their goals, and so,
0: and, and it worked. So we all applaud them. In many ways, it was the women who catapulted you to the presidency. How did they do that? How did they organize? And how did you depend on their support to, in the end, achieve the role that you've played so extraordinarily over the last 12 years? Well, first
1: of all, the women all ensured that they registered to vote. They had regular meetings, they didn't have resources, they didn't have any money, but that was not a problem. They met. They worked with their children, their sons, who are some of the young voters, and, and sometimes they've did things to make sure that their sons didn't get to the polls. (laughs) But, you know, it was, they, they really were just a determined people that said our country had over 150 years old, had never been, had a woman leader, and it was time for that change, and too many men leaders had led the country to the state where it was so underdeveloped that they wanted a woman to have an opportunity. They did everything
0: they could. And in a way, the victory is theirs. So Ellen Johnson Sirleaf becomes president. She's duly elected in a democratic process. And you confront the ravages of the war, the destruction, huge debt. How did you set priorities? And how did you begin to form a government? What were your early steps that you knew you had to undertake? I inherited a devastated
1: country which means the needs were profound. Every area of our society had been destroyed. That made it very difficult because there were no resources, there were no systems, institutions were dysfunctional. And so it was very difficult, but we were able to put together a group of young people, very dynamic, very committed, very strong, we started out with a poverty reduction program with the support of the World Bank and the IMF. We started on a massive debt relief program. We had inherited a 5 billion external debt that hadn't been serviced. And so that we took two years negotiating the relief of those debt. I just became the catalyst and the spark to move all these things together into a combined, a collective force of wanting to bring the change that we have. And I'm pleased that after 12 years of service that um, we've brought Liberia to the place where the foundation has been laid and the new administration can now build upon that, consolidate the gains, and introduce new changes, new visions that will that will lead to the acceleration in, uh, in growth and the acceleration in, in the progress that the country will
0: have. In the process of doing all of the things you just described, you also made women a priority in terms of appointments, in terms of their engagement in the security sector. Can you just tell us a little bit about how you made your administration inclusive and how you brought women in to be a continuing part of the solution? We had hoped we would have had the majority of
1: our positions headed by women, that was impossible, because women had not been nurtured over the years to do that. But we had very key, talented, strong, educated women with all the technical skills, and we put them in those key positions, the Justice Ministry, the Foreign Ministry, the Ministry of Finance. They took those positions, and that, too, sent a a big signal to everybody that the women were in charge of the major institutions. Of course, I center a lot of my program around market women because the market women were really the vibrant one of the society that had been neglected. And so just giving them good working conditions enabled them to feel a part of the society. We focus on education for young girls so they too could know that the future was there. So it was a combination of all these things. And we'll see women... I think the inspiration of my tenure will lead to so many women in so many African countries, and I dare say beyond, know that that opportunity is theirs, and they've they've got to claim it. They've got to work for it. They've got to be determined to make sure that this gender equality that we all seek takes place, and takes place in a progressive way so that it's, it's expanding all the time. More and more women are getting into top leadership positions into the pinnacle of leadership in many countries.
0: One last question, Madam President. What is the next chapter for you, and how do you see Africa? I think you're bullish on Africa. I think the record
1: will support the bullishness because Africa has been growing, achieving rates of growth that have surpassed many of the other regions of the world. Africa is democratizing. If you look at the many countries now, have moved from the strongman autocratic leader of the past uh, to elections to many that have had successive transformation, successive elections, and you know in which leadership has passed. Uh, so Africa is doing well. Yes, there are dark spots here and there, but the majority have changed, and and I think it's it's a great example today in this changing world and uncertain environment where we see some backsliding by countries that have embraced uh, international standards of democracy and participation, I think Africa is still forging ahead and setting the example for the few laggards that have yet to catch up. And for you, the next, the next months, years? You know, I have a restless spirit. That means that despite my age, I'm not going to retire and sit down and, you know, I'm going to be working. I'm going to be working for the promotion of women. We're going to establish a center that's going to identify women out there who can become good business leaders so that women can also be a part of that environment that commands resources, that commands position. And working, have those role models share some of their experience and the number of women, you know, can just grow,
0: we hope, exponentially. Thank you so much, President Sirleaf.
1: Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you.
0: This year, President Sirleaf was the first woman to be awarded the Mo Ibrahim Prize for Excellence in African Leadership. She plans to use the funds from the award to establish the Ellen Johnson-Surley Presidential Center for Women and Development. It will train women to understand their political power and encourage women from across Africa to get involved in politics. Next time on Seeking Peace, we hear from Major General Kristen Lund, the first and only woman to command an international peacekeeping mission for the united nations seeking peace is a production of georgetown university's institute for women peace and security and hard listening media our associate producer is ali post the show is edited by ibi caputo and sound designed by sarah curtis our production manager is sarah rutherford and our executive producer is kate osborne Original music is composed by Allison Leighton Brown. This show was made possible by the Compton Foundation. We are a new series, and if you liked what you heard, please share with your friends and family and leave us a rating on iTunes. It helps other people find us.